Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General podcast. I am Al, and today we're going to be continuing our look at legendary weapons from across the globe. So today we're going to be taking a look at perhaps one of the most well-known legendary figures from British history, and perhaps one of the most well-known historical figures of, or actually not historical, but legendary figures in the world, and that is King Arthur. going to be taking a look at some of the weapons and armor from Arthurian legend. But before we take a look at the weapons... I think it's important to take a look at the man as well as some of the stories that have been told about him. Who was King Arthur? Was he a real person? Was he maybe inspired by a real person? Or is he just a made-up figure from legend? That has actually been a question of debate among scholars and historians for quite some time. Now, there are some earlier sources that describe a person named Arthur, or with a very similar name, not as a king, but rather as a war leader who defended Britain from the Anglo-Saxons. And this would have been sometime in the 5th century. There's also another theory that he may actually be based on a now-forgotten Celtic god who was reduced to mortal status. One of the earliest mentions of a Arthur figure is from a poem called the Gadadian. And before we continue, I should probably give that mispronunciation disclaimer Uh, We'll be actually referring to a bit of French in today's episode, as well as uh, Welsh. And these are not languages I've ever learned to speak, so I'm probably going to be mispronouncing some of these names. But in this poem, the Gadadian, there is a description of a warrior named Gwaruder. And it was proclaimed that he was skilled at slaying his enemies but he was no Arthur. Much of the early Arthurian lore can be traced to a work called The History of the Kings of Britain, written by a cleric named Geoffrey of Monmouth in 1130. He mixed mythological accounts with what few historical records there were at the time. He mentions a sore named Calafwa, and a castle named Carleon. He also added Merlin, who may have been inspired by a bard named Myrdin. Geoffrey's book proved to be quite popular, and in 1155, it was translated into a French by a poet named Wasse. Oddly enough, though, from here on out, much of what popular culture associates with Arthur and his knights comes from French sources as opposed to English sources. So, in a way, we can think of the Arthurian legends as one of the world's longest-running fanfics, because over the years, people would 
take the various tales of King Arthur and his knights and uh, some authors would add things, others would disregard certain elements and the story would eventually grow and there's many different variations of it. Wase, though he did make one of the most probably well-known editions and that was the Knights of the Round Table. You might wonder, why was his table round? And that was because this way all who sat at the table would be considered equal and no one could claim to have the privileged position of being at the head of the table. Another French poet named Creerton de Troyes added further stories about the various knights we know of today. He was also the one who came up with the love triangle between Arthur, Guinevere, and Lancelot, as well as the Grail. However, at this time, Lancelot's relationship with Guinevere was seen more as an example of socially acceptable courtly love as opposed to a simple adulterous affair. It should also be noted that at this point, the Grail was not identified with the Holy Grail. That is an addition that would come later. The poet Robert de Boron made several important contributions to Arthurian lore in the late 12th or 13th centuries. He turned Detroit's Grail into the Holy Grail by proclaiming that it was brought to England by Joseph of Arimathea. He also added the story of Merlin's demonic heritage. He wrote that Merlin was conceived by an incubus, and it was intended that he would be the new Antichrist. But his mother let her confessor know about this, so as a result, after he was born, his mother had him baptized to prevent him from carrying out this destiny of becoming a new Antichrist. Other contributions include the Sword in the Stone, Morgan Le Fay, the relationship between Lancelot and Guinevere, and the Green Knight. This would lead to a series called the Vulgate Cycle, which would also add more Christian elements to Arthurian legends. The post-Vulgate Cycle came a little later. It added material from the prose Tristan, focused less on the love affair of Lancelot and Guinevere, and put more of an emphasis on the quest for the Holy Grail. Probably the most well-known telling of Arthur's story comes from another French poet named Sir Thomas Mallory. He wrote a book called La Morte de Arthur, or The Death of Arthur. It was published in 1485, after his death in 1471. Mallory reinterpreted several of the tales and added some of his own material. His work is divided into eight books. First, there is The Birth and Rise of Arthur. The next book details Arthur's war against the Romans. Next, is a book of various tales about Sir Lancelot. Then there's the book of Gareth. 
Next is the book that has the story of Tristan and Isolde. Then there's the quest for the Holy Grail, the affair between Lancelot and Guinevere. And finally, the last book has the death of Arthur, as well as the end of the Knights of the Round Table. So basically, Arthur evolved to fill whatever role the writer wanted him to fill, whether it was that of a fearless warrior, a just king, or the ideal righteous Christian warrior. Over time, Arthur's legends have been retold and reinterpreted countless times in film, television, and literature. One of the interpretations that I'm most familiar with is Monty Python and the Holy Grail, though I'm pretty sure that there's not much historical accuracy to this version. I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess there's probably never any mention anywhere of a castle anthrax inhabited by beautiful young women who require spankings as punishment. Another one of my favorite adaptations is the miniseries of The Mists of Avalon. I found this one interesting because this time it was telling the tale with a focus on the female characters. And as I recall, it portrayed Morgan Le Fay in a much more sympathetic light. So I enjoyed this series a lot, and I thought it did an interesting job of combining some of the pagan and Christian elements of Arthurian lore. More recently, Arthur and his crew played a role in Transformers The Last Night, where a group of Autobots from Cybertron made a secret pact with Merlin and helped Arthur repel a Saxon invasion. So that's an interesting combination. I bet you never thought you would ever see Arthurian legend mixed in with a story about giant transforming robots from outer space. So we'll take a look at some of the weapons from Arthurian lore in just a moment. Check out the guys over at Eclectic Media Project. They bring you podcasts such as Musically Challenged. Whose podcast is it anyway? Want to hear something interesting? And their newest podcast, page 3.14 News. Check them out on Podbean and iTunes at Eclectic Media Project. On their website at www.eclecticmediaproject.com. Check them out as they are the home with a little something for almost everyone. And we're back. The first weapon from Aetherian Legend... I'd like to talk about is the sword and the stone. Now, there's some debate. Sometimes it's seen as the same as Excalibur, though this is probably a later addition. Most likely, the sword and the stone is a separate sword from Excalibur, and its only purpose was to show that the person who would draw it from the stone was the rightful king of Britain. Now, honestly, I probably wouldn't use the sword and the stone in a campaign. At least if I did, I wouldn't really stat it out as a very powerful weapon, though. I would see it more as a plot device. Though the sword and the stone does have some other mythological parallels. In one of the Aetherian legends, there is a tale about how Galahad draws a sword from a stone. 
In Norse mythology, there is the story of Sigmund, who draws a sword called Gram out of a tree. The sword was placed there by Odin, who, disguised as a beggar, proclaimed that anyone who could draw it could have it. Sigmund's son, Sigurd, would later use it to slay the dragon Fafnir. There's also another parallel in Italy, and that is the tale of St. Galgano of Tuscany. In his younger years, he was said to be ruthless and materialistic. He had a vision involving the archangel Michael. He was told to renounce his ways, to which Galgano said would be harder than splitting a rock. So to prove his point, he drew his sword and drove it into a nearby boulder, which to his surprise split like butter. The sword, or at least one believed to be his sword, exists in a chapel in Tuscany. Legend says that anyone who tried to remove the sword will rip off his arm instead, and there actually have been two mummified hands that have been found within the chapel. Tests have shown that both the hands and the sword date to around the 12th century, which is actually around the time that St. Galgano lived. And this sword does still exist, as I said, except there is a plexiglass dome over it, so no would-be kings could try to pull it from the stone or risk you know, ripping their arms off. Well, next, let's talk Excalibur. This is probably one of the most famous mythical legendary swords in the world. And if you're a fan of the Final Fantasy games, you know that Excalibur has appeared in several of the games in that series, and it also appears in other series of games as well. It may have its roots in earlier swords from Irish mythology. Usually, it's pictured as a long sword or a hand-and-a-half sword. Though, in reality, it probably would have been closer to a Roman sword like a Gladius or a Spartha, possibly with Celtic-style influences. Celtic swords often had anthropomorphic handles and sometimes had a leaf-shaped blade. So, if there was really a historical Excalibur, probably did not resemble the knightly longsword that we're used to uh, seeing it depicted as. Well, you might wonder, why is it usually shown as a sword from a later time period? While researching this episode, I watched a video on YouTube by Shadversity, and he made an interesting point. Many of the tales involving Arthur and his knights probably would have taken place around the 5th or 6th century. The stories about Arthur likely developed hundreds of years later. So, since the stories were hundreds of years removed from the time period in which they were believed to have taken place, artists illustrating these tales would have decided to use contemporary weapons and armor since the audience would be more familiar with this type of equipment than what would have been used hundreds of years ago. So again, it's 
this romantic image we have of again King Arthur in full plate mail with the big shield and the long sword probably not historically accurate to what King Arthur really would have looked like. He probably would have looked like a again a Celtic Roman warrior from the 400s. Now this is actually not an uncommon practice that is again take illustrating a story using clothing and weapons and armor and equipment from a later time. Another example is the Crusader Bible. And this depicts scenes from the Old Testament, but using weapons, armor, clothing, and customs from the 13th century. Also, many paintings depicting biblical events that were made during the Renaissance usually also pictured these characters in contemporary clothing. And again, that just makes it more relatable to the audience. Excalibur has been known by a few other names. Caldefoix, Calcevol, Caliburnus, and Escalibur. It might be related to the sword Caliborg, which we talked about in the episode on Irish weapons. One side of Excalibur's blade has an engraving that says, Take me up. The other, Cast me away. A later story, The Dream of Ronawi, a Welsh story dating from 12th or 13th century, describes that a weapon that belonged to King Arthur, though it is not explicitly named as Excalibur. The weapon's hilt had two chimera, and it was said that when drawn, there seemed to be fire coming from the mouths of the chimera, and it was not easy to look at. So, in that regards, similar to a couple of the swords we learned about when I did my episode on uh, Italy, France, and Spain, like with the swords of El Cid, where when he drew them, it could strike fear into an enemy's heart. Thomas Malleroy stated that when drawn, it gave off the light of 30 torches. That's about all we know about the powers of Excalibur for literature. It might actually be seen as another version of Claymo Solius, the Sword of Light. And again, I talked about that uh, last episode on Weapons of Ireland. It was described as the best of swords and was seen as a symbol of sovereignty over Britain. So how might we stat this out in Dungeons and Dragons? For the most part, this has already been done. Usually it's pictured as a plus five longsword, which is acceptable. Um, again, as far as the sword goes, I might place it actually a little closer to a short sword if you are going to be going more by historical standards, but I don't think there's anything wrong with making it a longsword. Plus five would also make sense, or at least whatever the highest uh, magical bonus is in the system that you're using. Also, it's sometimes statted out as a holy sword. Nothing necessarily wrong with that, though because it could possibly be seen as another version of the Sword of Light, I would probably place it closer to a sun blade with a lawful good alignment. Arthur also had some other useful pieces of equipment. 
Excalibur's scabbard was a powerful artifact in its own right that it prevented wounds from bleeding. So there's a number of ways you can work with this. I know in the earlier versions of D&D, you, it makes you take half damage from edged weapons and piercing weapons. You could also just make it where any sort of edged weapon attack or any attack that would cause bleeding maybe only does a single point of damage. He also had a shield called Preedwin. I would probably give it a, a low armor class bonus, maybe a plus one or plus two, though since it did have that image of the Virgin Mary, I could also see giving it maybe another power, like if used by a paladin or a lawful good fighter or warrior, maybe give it a chance to turn undead once or twice a day. In some stories, Arthur also had a dagger called Carnwenan. This dagger could cast its user in shadow, so I would give it the ability to cast an invisibility spell a couple times a day. Though it actually seems to be a powerful weapon in its own right. In one story, Arthur uses it to cut a witch named Ordu in half, and according to Mallory, he used it to kill a giant. So how is, might we stat this out? I would maybe give it about a plus two, and maybe give someone the ability to, well, of course, the invisibility, maybe give them the ability to move silently as well, like a thief. But I would also say maybe on a critical hit, give them the backstab modifier that a thief would normally have. Arthur also had a spear called Rongomniant, though I couldn't really find much about this weapon. So since it doesn't seem to be very important, or at least we don't have much to go on, I would maybe give it a plus one, maybe plus two, since, again, it doesn't really seem to be a very powerful weapon and doesn't really seem to play a very prominent role in the Arthurian legends, at least not as far as I could tell. Some other swords from Arthurian legend. There is also a weapon called the Grail Sword. It was described as a holy sword that was broken, but then repaired by Sir Percival. So I could see that standing this one out as a holy sword, holy avenger. Many of the knights also had various named weapons, but since I couldn't find much information on them, again, probably fairly minor, plus one or plus two. Chances are if you're doing a historical campaign, you're probably not going to have a lot of powerful magic items out there, and I certainly would not recommend making anything more powerful than Excalibur. One sword I did read a little bit about was the sword Korisu, which is the sword of Lancelot's father. Its name means wrathful, so I would probably give this the, the statistics of a sword-cursed berserking. Now, it's been a while since I've read the description of it, but I think it was only like about a plus two weapon, so not that high, but it there was a chance that when you used it, you would just start going berserk and attack anything in your path. Another sword is called Clarent. This sword was primarily ceremonial, used mainly for knighting, at least until it was stolen by Mordred and eventually used to kill Arthur. So because of this, I would make it evil aligned. 
I would also give it the properties of a sword of slain when used against kings and rulers. I'd probably make it a cursed weapon though. I would though give it a decent modifier, plus three, maybe plus four. But again, I think since it was used to kill Arthur, there certainly should be a a downside to possessing this weapon, even if you try not to use it for evil. But again, since it was used to kill Arthur, I think the sword's curse might be maybe to gradually turn the user towards evil. Another notable weapon from the Arthurian legends is the Axe of the Green Knight. Now, in the last episode, I mentioned the Childcraft storybook that I had when I was a kid. Another one of the stories from that particular book was about Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. So the story goes that one day while Arthur and his knights were having a feast, I think it may have been around Christmas, but they were having a feast and a green-skinned man in green armor carrying a large battle axe came into Camelot and he challenged the knights. He dared any one of them to try to cut his head off with his axe on the condition that he would be allowed to return the blow a year and a day later. Well, of all the knights, only Sir Gawain decided he would take up the knight on this this offer. So the knight kneeled down and Gawain picked up the axe and severed his head in one shot. Well, much to their surprise, the green knight then picked up his head and course told Gwen that he would be waiting for him a year and a day and from uh, some of the stories that I was reading the and later on not in the childcraft book this was actually a plot by um, I think it was Morgan Le Fay or was some other evil sorceress who wanted to who actually did this as a way to hopefully scare Guinevere to death so a year and a day passed and Gwen ventured to the location where he was going to meet the Green Knight and realized he was going to die. So he took his kneeling position, but when the axe was about to come down, he flinched. And of course, the Green Knight uh, scolded him for this and he felt ashamed. So then he decided, okay, just do it. He's not going to move. Well, the Knight brought the axe down and only nicked his neck. Again, showing that he had he had uh, passed his trial of courage there, and also kept his word as well. And also, this did break the curse that was on the Green Knight. So, how would we stat this out? Now, in Legends and Lore, I think they stat out his axe at either plus three or plus four. I would also, though, give it the abilities of a Vorpal Sword. Of course, the knight's real strength, though, is going to lie in his armor. So I would say that this armor protects the wearer from critical hits, as well as allowing them to regenerate a large amount of, of hit points per round. Though in at least one of the versions of the story I was reading again later on, the knight actually didn't wear green armor. He just came in wearing green clothes, and I think he did also have the green hair and skin as well. 
So there you have it. A look at some weapons and armor from Arthurian legend. So as always, I hope you enjoyed the show and like to thank you all for taking some time out of your day to listen and have a good evening or morning or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are and happy gaming. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.